0: Hey, what's up? It's episode 131, Pain Points of Wealth, and we have a very special guest on the show to speak about the labor market. Everyone knows the labor market's been hot, will continue to be hot, but we have Eric Sigerson on today. He co-leads the technology officer's practice for Russell's Reynolds Associates. He has spent the last 30 years recruiting and placing senior execs in the IT space, and is really on the pulse of what's happening in the job market, tech market specifically. And we're going to talk about some of our true and tried investment philosophies that you want to apply to your financial fr- freedom independence plan. Check it out; we got a phenomenal show. Well, first up, Eric, thanks for being on the show. We really appreciate it. And you know, maybe tell us a little about yourself and you know, how did you get started yeah. in the recruiting field. I feel like you've been doing a, quite a long time. So. Yeah. Uh, Tell us from the beginning.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ryan. So first of all, no one grows up thinking they're gonna be a headhunter. Uh, I went to school to be a computer science guy, got into sales with IBM, where I spent 11 years, uh, and then realized that uh, I really enjoyed being in the executive suite at a lot younger age than I was being allowed to inside IBM. So executive search provided me with the opportunity to help clients with their talent challenges. And so uh, almost 30 years ago, as you mentioned, I I joined Russell Reynolds, did broad technology recruiting for the first 10 years, and the last 18 or 19 have been focused exclusively on recruiting chief information officers, technology officers, digital officers across all industries.
0: So basically big wigs in the tech industry for the most
1: part. Yeah, it's mainly tech within a broad set of companies with a little bit of work in the tech industry itself, right? So it's more of the technologists working for financial services firms, for insurance companies, for retailers, etc.
2: It's certainly a role that's uh, become more and more important uh, as each year goes by.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it used to be such a small percentage of spending back in the 80s when I started and here today, you know, if you're a a bank, you're spending 30, 35% of revenues on your financial, on your technology footprint.
3: Well, it's kind of amazing too, like, because before I worked at Payne Capital Management, I worked in the disaster recovery space. So, you know, when you go to some of these places, you wouldn't just have a a chief technology officer, but you'd have an offset of that. You'd have like a chief recovery officer. I mean, are you seeing a lot of that too, where it's just like the roles have completely expanded?
1: Yeah, they have. They've gotten a lot broader. You know, we didn't have a chief data officer 10 years ago. We didn't have a chief digital officer until, you know, five or six years ago. So those are all terminology to help reflect specialization uh, and, you know, companies are having to evolve to embrace technology as a strategic asset.
0: Now, that's a great point. And, you know, what I'm curious about too, is like, we've, all we hear about is, look, unemployment's extremely low. Um, a lot of the naysayers out there say, well, just give us some time. You know, at some point the labor market's going to start to weaken. Um, obviously tech has gone through a lot of turmoil over the course of the last year or so, you know, we see a lot of layoffs there. Um, but, you know, we're, as you know, with our podcast and our, our view is typically a little more rosy than the average, uh, maybe uh, prognosticator on Wall Street. So what are you seeing right now in the labor market? Like, is is it hot? Is it not hot? You know, yeah. where are you seeing, you know, the, the real action?
1: Well, as you mentioned, I mean, we saw a big correction in the tech industry itself with a lot of jobs being taken out earlier this year, late last year, based on overhiring during COVID. So companies had been able to reduce their expenses substantially during the pandemic that afforded them to, to hire aggressively. As things or the perception that things were going to weaken, they started to, to take people out and almost get back to more of a normal. I think across the tech role inside other industries, it's remained relatively robust. Uh, I've always said going into the oh seven oh eight crisis, I said, if you weren't happy with your chief information officer going into a recession, you're probably unlikely to get any happier during the recession. <laughs> so you saw changes taking place, replacements, upgrades occurring, even when times may have been a little challenging. So what we've seen this year is a continued focus on quality, a continued focus on having the right tech leader who knows how to um, drive kind of product oriented. Uh, Mindset and how they implement technology within companies, Uh, and and they're doing it at the top level. It's just there has been you know a little bit of a softening from '01 and '21 and '22, but we still see a fairly robust market for the top tech leader.
3: And Eric, you know, just with everybody starting to work from home, you know, you're starting to hear about people going back to the office. Yeah. You know how how has that affected? um, You know the types of people that you're recruiting, and you know has that made your job more challenging? Yeah, I mean,
1: I think when we went when the pandemic first hit uh it took off the table the single biggest impediment to getting leaders to change jobs which is relocation relocation has always been the hardest thing yes impeded people from being able to move from company to company so with the pandemic all of a sudden companies relaxed the need for relocation which allowed more movement and we knew at some point that we were going to revert maybe not back to the way it was in 19 but back more towards the center. And so um, people that may have moved in 21, 22 are realizing companies are saying, hey, we want you back in the office. I can think of a large quick service restaurant chain, for example, that said, hey, we are in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You need to be here. And by the way, if you don't live here, you're getting here on your nickel, not ours. So all of a sudden, the, the landscape's changing. And people are having to be more serious about well, maybe I do need to relocate or find another job where I live.
0: So what you're saying is maybe Chris can't stay on Maine for the whole month of uh August and he should come back to the office. Eric, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> like this is this is really good. Yeah,
1: just don't talk to me about being in Naples in the winter.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, no, it's it's an interesting perspective because I think, you know, you're probably gonna come somewhere in the middle, maybe, right? So it's not like in the office, because I think, you know, COVID did teach us that, like, hey, a lot of things can be done remotely that used to be traditionally, you had to be in the office for like, the thing that blew my mind is, you know, we'd always have to meet clients face to face for them to become clients. And we had so many people during COVID that maybe heard us from somewhere, never met us face to face, uh, we did everything over zoom and end up working with us, which would have never happened before COVID. Now, that's just like a very, very common practice where we don't have to meet people physically in an office and they're still willing to work with us. And I have to imagine that probably you can extrapolate that out to lots of different industries.
1: Yeah, I think what I've learned from this is now that we've gotten to this new normal of being much more remote, when you do get face to face, it makes a difference. When we sit across the table from a client uh, like we did this week with a large uh, industrial, $10 billion industrial company new opportunities come out of that because we're sitting across the table from them Mm -hmm. when you're on a zoom call they might be doing email they might be checking their schedule for the rest of the week they might be looking at their vacation plans while they're talking to you you cannot multitask when you're in person with somebody you can when you're on a zoom call like you know right now I could be looking away but I'm not (laughs) so it does require you to focus there's no replacement for in person But you're right, there's a lot of improvements and efficiencies to be gained by not having to commute every day to the office.
2: You know, I think um, Ryan and Chris have both said it more than once on this podcast, if you don't go visit your client, somebody else will. Um, And I think that's, you know, it's great for, you know, the businesses we're in, but what about, are they having a hard time getting their employees to come in? I mean, what are you hearing from, you know, the folks that you're hiring in terms of motivating, you know, the sales force and the workforce?
1: yeah it's it's hard to get once once that genie left the bottle it's really hard to get it back in and the idea of five days a week is is almost off the table they're yeah. just hoping for two to three days a week in the office and and the the smarter companies are those that are are uh, orchestrating that in such a way that you're in the office at the same time <laughs> so that you're together <laughs> nothing worse than showing up to the office and being there by yourself and sitting in a cubicle on zoom calls all day so it it does require some thinking and planning and strategizing and i think um the the people who have been hurt the most through this uh change and and work style is our kids you know coming out of college 2023 20, yes. um think about how our lives were shaped by going to the office every day and being in person and running you know when you had a question going next door and and having it just available to you and then going out for drinks afterwards uh and seeing people socially and and that whole experience is gone is gone by the wayside and it's really hurting uh those those uh young adults who are trying to learn what culture is and learn what good work ethic is uh, yes you know they're not getting trained the way we were
0: all trained yeah i just think
2: you know listening to an experienced person in an industry you know just eavesdropping right sitting in the office next door sitting in the same cubicle you just you know you start to imitate that you learn what works what doesn't work it doesn't happen remotely and i right. think that's that's a really good thing about it at the
1: end of the day you know you look to the left you look to the right that's how you learn um hey uh it's five o'clock the day's over do i walk out the door but gosh everyone's still here they're still working you
0: know <laughs> Perfect thing to work.
1: where your boss leaves you remember that whole feeling um yeah, yeah it's just a it's just a different environment.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. And then you've seen that in the numbers, productivity. And I mean, I can attest to this. I'm not as productive from home, for sure. It's just like when you separate kind of church and state, like you're at the office, you get your work done, you go home. And it's it's a separate, there's a delineation there. I think when you don't have that, I think it becomes Mm. kind of murky with how your work ethic becomes. And I think too, like, I don't know if you see this, but like the younger generation, I imagine they yearn to go to the office. Cause I think in here in New York city, like you have these, they're living in these small apartments. <laughs> they're working there all day. Um, they're not going into an office and like, you know, that's, that's their life. I think that's gotta be kind of hard if you're just out of college and you're living in a big city like New York or something yeah. like that.
1: absolutely. I think, you know, we've got tw- twin 26 year old boy, girl twins that are both consultants. And he goes into the office three or four days a week just for the hope of seeing people. Um, oh. You know she goes in maybe once a week uh just because you know her client situation is a little bit different so it's just it really has hurt them and and i do agree i don't think we look at the commute time as being a negative there is a positive side around this buffer where it helps you sort of uh, decompartmentalize you know what you've been working on kind of get ready for the evening and disconnect uh, versus today how many of us you know might Take a break at four thirty, and then six thirty, seven, seven thirty. You're back online, and you're continuing to work, and and that line blurs.
0: Yeah, it totally does. But I have a couch in the office, so I can take a nap here. <laughs>
2: yeah, and it always annoys me, Eric in Naples, when you can't meet me for happy hour because you have to do a client conference call.
0: <laughs> yeah. you know, so
2: you know you gotta you gotta manage that schedule a little better. <laughs> um, and I can see on like on a C-suite level, uh like their critical few objectives could be adjusted, or you know that could be part of the uh bonus you know based on how many days they come to the office They're using that uh, carrot and stick approach That's with a lot of these folks
1: this is a very interesting question so uh Felice and I and my wife had dinner with our CEO last night and his wife who's Greek and we're heading to Greece in next month so he's giving us some tips and uh he was quoting um uh, badge in data by office around the world for our firm and so certainly leadership is looking in that kind of information um some companies very few are using it as a stick most of them trying to be more encouraging about it um some are saying like there's a large accounting firm that said hey it will impact your bonus next wow spring. so yeah be mindful of that um i think there's going to be a big testament come September 1st, as we come into the fall, there are a lot of companies that are saying, hey, it's gonna be different this fall. We want you back in the office and we mean it this yeah. time. And <laughs> so we'll see, because unemployment is still so low.
0: Yes, that was my question. Yeah. We we'll
1: yeah. still have the power. Yeah. And unless, in, in and again, trust me, I don't want to see this scenario where we have eight, 9% unemployment, but if and when we get to that position, the worker will say, Well, I'm not coming in. They'll go, Well, great. Just don't bother coming in at all. <laughs> you know, yeah. Find somebody else to do your job.
0: Well, I think one of the other problems, too, and I'm, you're seeing this or not, but it's just demographics. I mean, the biggest issue in the United States is I use a stat all the time, but you have 2 million baby boomers retiring every year. Yeah. Um, you know, birth rates have slowed drastically, and that takes like 20 years for that to even impact the labor market. Are you seeing that shrinking labor pool? becoming more problematic as baby boomers leave the workforce and they can't be replaced. And we have a huge number of job openings.
1: Welcome generative AI. I mean, yeah. it's going to replace a lot of those jobs that were potentially filled by knowledge workers who have retired. And so you have this kind of yin and yang going on around using technology to fill those roles. There are many industries that are going to be dramatically impacted by uh, the concepts of chat GBT, legal healthcare, financial services, to be the name a few. Our our industry will be impacted. I don't know if it'll be disrupted yeah. like legal industry will be, but I think that will help um fill in for some of the gaps that may exist, but it won't give up some of the um the the deep knowledge base that some of these retiring workers have, subject matter experts yeah. that are retiring. And it, it's hard to sell how that's all going to play itself out.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think two comments on that. First off, I don't think generative uh, generative AI could replicate Bob's hair, but that's, you know, years away. But, but secondly, um, I think that's the, the the right conversation. The conversation is, and AI is going to replace all our jobs, is we desperately need AI to help us with our labor shortage. That's a yeah. way bigger problem than worrying about all our jobs going away. And I think, like, that's the wrong conversation to have right now. Right. Like, we, we're going to need, you know, to fill in the gaps one way.
1: And you help. might argue that combination of that and uh, a revised immigration policy. I mean you do yes. this all the time. The best some of the best talent in the world isn't sitting in the United States. We need to be more open minded to letting people into our across our borders who can help add to our GDP. And um, to restrain that based on policy is just I think
0: short sighted they'll be forced to change it because the labor shortage is real. That's my opinion. When the fires uh under your uh, yep. rear end, so to speak, you know, you're going to have to have a bipartisan,
2: <laughs> yeah. uh,
0: you know, view on that at some point, I think a hundred percent.
2: Well, we know, but based on history, that Washington doesn't move until it's right on the brink. So it's right. going to have to be a crisis before we, uh, we see
0: any, any help from the DC. That's for sure. Exactly. All right. Well, most important question, which I didn't actually, Put on your questions, Eric, because I want to give you a curveball here. But we ask all our guests this. What album, when you heard it for the first time, changed the way you view, uh, you view the world and why?
1: What album? I've, I'm, I'm going to have an answer for this.
0: Yeah. I, I didn't want you to prepare ahead of time. That's how I I'll, knew you would.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I absolutely. And I know you love music because we've talked I about it. I do love music. And I know you love music. Um, and you, I know you were in a band uh B-level bands but yes so I'm just (laughs) trying to think of the Billy Joel tune it's the first one that came up when I had my brand new album uh that I'm on my first stereo and it was um I can sing it let me think it's from but it was not you can sing it no (laughs) it was um let's give me a second you scheduled an hour right (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um it's got a now we great it it's like got a great movie. uh flugelhorn solo oh you know it's gonna I, i'll just say it's billy joel i mean it, billy joel the stranger loved it It was in the set what 70s. was it
0: about the album like what no, was it, it,
1: just, album? it just it just it just hit me it's a great look i was always someone who appreciated someone's voice and he had a great voice plus he had a jazz like sound to a rock album and so i always appreciated that because i kind of grew up i'm a tenor sax player my whole family was in the music business uh, my brother's a juilliard cellist my dad was a professional flutist and so um i just love jazz and then to bring that kind of flair and musicianship into a rock album i just love
0: that's a cool combination. I feel like you might have been a Steely Dan fan in the 70s, love,
1: too. Love the Dan. Yes. <laughs> um, early when they, they were a studio uh, band for a long time, I thought of on their first tour, which was New York Rock and Soul Review, which was uh, with, uh, with Donald Fagan and Walter Becker touring. Oh, Absolutely. Amazing. I mean, I I was all over that. In fact, going next weekend to see final tour of Kenny Loggins. He's making the Swan Song in Ravinia. Just he's just fabulous so i'm i'm really i'm really psyched i've been blessed to hear a lot of great musicians
2: we've had a lot of billy joel uh inspiration on this uh podcast really yeah,
0: you're yeah. not the first yeah
2: yeah
1: well you're in new york i'm
0: trying to i'm trying to fashion my comments <laughs> <laughs> well eric thank you very much this has been great uh insights to what's going on in the labor market. We appreciate you taking your time today. it uh, been, been great to get some insights and, and catch up with you, man. Thank you all. It's
1: great hearing you all and, and look forward to seeing you guys in person soon.
0: Great. Right. Thanks, Eric. Hey, hope you're enjoying episode 131, Pain Points of Wealth. Everything you hear on this podcast, along with some due diligence of your own, can help you get ahead financially, literally at any stage of your journey. But if you want a more hands-on approach and you've saved over a million dollars for your financial independence plan, Bob Chris will run for you our total financial master plan. We'll do that with no obligation or cost. It's a full holistic review. We go through everything. There's no other firm out there that will do this work up front. We literally build you your own personalized financial portal. We'll give you a bird's eye view of your entire financial life. And we'll hone in on every financial issue you need to address today, whether it's an income plan for retirement, how to draw from your portfolio, how to take social security, how to factor in inflation, Without running out of money, a dynamic income plan so you can stay retired. We're gonna look at diversification. Has your portfolio been like a yo-yo the last two years as markets been all over the place? Or have you been sitting in cash paralysis by analysis, trying to figure out what to do? We're gonna to put together a full investment game plan, tie it to your goals, show you how to grow your wealth, but most importantly, protect it over the rest of your life. And we're gonna look at fees and taxes. Wall Street loves to sell you high cost, tax inefficient products, whether they're annuities mutual funds, insurance products, brokerage products, structured products. We're going to do a deep dive of every investment you own, show you how to reduce the cost and optimize your portfolio for taxes. It's not what you make. It's what you take. You'll get a full tax playbook. Simply go to www.paynecm.com slash financial plan to see if you qualify for a free financial review. All right, it's the tipping point. This is where we pinpoint the pain point, of course, that's P-A-Y-N-E, having the biggest impact on your wealth right now, and Bob and Chris. So I thought we could review some of our top, what I would call planning and investing rules that we've come up with, really the tenets of our firm, pain capital management, of course, that's P-A-Y-N-E, uh, over the course of the 15 years we've been in business and our collective 70 years of experience. And you know, one thing we've learned over time is higher returns typically mean higher risk.
2: Yeah, no, it's just amazing. I, I spoke to a client literally yesterday uh, who has a good friend of his is starting a company, and he's wanting to borrow money. He needs a couple of million dollars, and he doesn't want to go to venture capital. The bank won't lend him the money. And he says, you know, I can pay you 12%. And my client said, well, do you think there's any risk there? And I said, yeah. I mean, he's, that's not the return. That's what they're borrowing money from you. They're They're, they're borrowing money at 12%. I mean, when you can't borrow at four or five, like everybody else, you know, that number tells you it's extraordinary risk. Uh, So it's, I think when it comes to, you know, rates of return that are quoted, it's pretty easy to assess, you know, how much risk is involved. And a lot of folks don't see that.
3: Yeah. Or how about I I looked at a fund a couple of years ago for a prospect and Uh uh, it was paying a 10% dividend. And then when we actually peeled it back, it turned out about 6% of that was return of capital.
0: Yeah. I mean, you got to read the fine print. I mean, even now with, you know, this year we've talked about technology and growth doing so well. Um, and it's done well for a very, very long time. So you see a lot of concentration in all the big mega cap names, which have had a really great return. Well, guess what? We saw this last year. The downside can be pretty ugly, too. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. So it should always be a red flag when your returns are so good, uh, you know, especially when you put it in context of how other investments have done. And it might be time to look at the risk in your portfolio. Most of us think, well, it's doing great. I'll just add more money there, which is like the worst thing you can do. Well, the biggest yes.
2: problem I have is we're long-term investors, right? We're used to seeing investments go up. We're like the uh, the tortoise, not the hare, right? We don't care about day-to-day volatility. We like that slow and steady growth. So when you know one of our clients or friend comes to us with this you know new idea, this hot new idea, um, they don't understand the risk. Like you know, what if I put twenty-five thousand into this new issue, it's no big deal. It's only twenty-five thousand. Until they're down twenty-five thousand, then it's a big deal. You know, so it's it's sometimes hard for I think people who don't pay attention to this all the time to to understand how much risk there is inherently in a single idea,
3: yeah, or like how about those funds that use leverage? You know they'll say like oh, look at the, this s and p five hundred three times leverage fund it's up three times the s and p five hundred, but then what they don't realize to your point, Dad, is if it goes the other way, they're down three times as much
0: yeah that that's the that's the problem right is uh it's Bob likes to say risk is only known in hindsight. So you really have to kind of do a, a little bit of uh, you know, uh, putting your portfolio in this stress test, like what if this happens, what happens to your portfolio, and so on and so forth. And I think most of us don't do that, But proactive risk management is better than reactive, for sure. You know, the other philosophy or tenant that we have at our firm is planning over prophecies. And you know you always have those naysayers talking about apocalypse, now it's coming, recession hyperinflation. You know, we were meeting with a prospective client the other day, a referral from one of our
2: largest clients, and they said, well, under this planning process, what what other approaches are there? And I said, well, you could go by euphemisms and slogans. I mean, that's what a lot of people (laughs) do, Um, but we don't recommend that. We think- Following a planning-based approach makes it so much easier to understand what you own, and then more importantly, know why you own it. Yeah, it always seems like that these uh, these great
3: investments, you know, are always the one that had the most advertisement. Like when when crypto was so big, you know, there was always like these big ads for FTX and and Bitcoin. It's kind of like, well, if you really have to advertise it, like,
0: is it really that great? That's a great point. I mean, that's where gold. I mean, how many people own gold? It's, gold's been a horrible investment, right? I mean, you just look at it on a chart, and you would say I would never own gold. Yet gold is sold. Every year, those gold commercials go on. People always say, oh, I've got a couple of gold bars over here because they've been sold on the idea of like the dollar is going to be debased, right? The world's going to fall apart. And we're all of a sudden, all we're going to care about is owning gold. Meanwhile, I think I'd rather own a gun if it's apocalypse now, not gold, just saying.
2: I don't know, right? I started this industry, guys, almost 50 years ago. I think the average annual rate of return on gold is like 1%, while the average annual rate of return on equity has been 10%. And I love these commercials. Why would you want those horrible returns from equities when you could own gold? I mean, what are they talking about?
3: I don't know. I always like the commercials where they uh, they advertise the patriotic aspect of it, owning one of those patriotic
0: coins. That always gets me. <laughs> You're not a
3: real patriot that's unless you right. own a gold, you know, Statue of Liberty silver or gold or silver coin.
0: Yeah, if we etch something patriotic inside the uh, in, in, inside the bullion, for some reason that's going to make it worth more. I, I just don't get it. Um, you know, the other the other big. Issue that we see all the time is diversification over concentration, right? I mean, how many times, and I've talked about this a lot lately, because we see a lot of different portfolios are just overladen with Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, the SP 500. And, you know, what happens is, again, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, but that over concentration is always a problem on the downside.
2: It always is, because it's kind of like, um, You know these declines they happen slowly just paraphrase a famous author they happen so slowly and then suddenly right so you know it goes up as i said the other day like you're on an escalator right one step at a time slow you know slow um approach to the upside and then wow the downside is you're in an elevator shaft and if you think you're going to catch that right you're going to catch that falling knife and, and get out before it happens You're sadly mistaken.
0: Well, Bob, I think you said this line. I'm definitely paraphrasing, but it's like concentration can be the fastest way to create wealth, but also the fast way to destroy wealth. And I think that's the problem. Like You pick a stock and you do really well with it and you're saying, well, I'm not going to sell. I made this big bet and I was right. Well, eventually you could be dead wrong. And I think you're going to see that. Like You saw that when the 90s, when the tech bubble burst, all the, the Cisco's of the world, Oracle, you name it, all those stocks that just did so well. People just rode them up, but then they rode them down. And I think you could have the same problem today.
3: Well, you're seeing it now. I mean, especially with like the AI stocks, like NVIDIA, for example, you know, everybody's talking about, we got to get into AI. It's got ways to run. But, you know, at the same time, it's trading at 62 times forward earnings. So it's, you know, the likelihood is that's not going to be the darling of the future. It might be, but, you know, there's other things that have more value.
2: I think this illustrates it better than anything. You know, the the famous ARK fund. You know that's in, in, invested in all this innovative, disruptive technology. If you take the day that went public when they first offered it a couple of years ago, and then you measure it against small to mid-sized industrial companies like old American companies, right? Small to mid-sized industrial companies are outperforming the ARC Fund. So you know it's like it's it, it's great when you, it catches your attention when something goes up 189 percent in one year. You don't think about. Uh, you're not in it, right? When you're buying it up 189%, there's nothing but downside. So it's, it's, you know, when you're in these riskier investments, you know, it's great for cocktail parties. It's horrible, you know, for your financial health, well-being.
0: All right, it's the hidden facts of finance, random financial facts that may surprise you or even shock you. All right, Bob. The average annual return of the S&P 500 was 10% a year from 1990 to 2022, excluding dividends. The biggest return of any single stock in one year since 1980 was Qualcomm, which is a definitely a name from the past, Bob. You remember that name? In 1999, it went up a mind-numbing 2,620% in one year. The second biggest one-year gainer of all time was Tesla, In 2020, was up 743%, but man, oh, man, that pales in comparison to what Qualcomm did in 1999. Well, you know what? You guys nailed it the other day when you said that uh, the
2: problem with these financial news channels is they talk about the same five stocks all the time. And if you go back 20 years, 25 years, I mean, every day they were talking about Qualcomm to the point where... When, when every day they had somebody going, Qualcomm, Qualcomm, you know, it was like this. It was so obnoxious. And that's all they <laughs> talked about. And, you know, I had an individual that I trained that actually worked for another firm. Um, he, You know, he when he when he worked with me he, and he went off to another firm, he had, a, he had a physician who took his entire pension, his personal accounts, liquidated everything he had with his advisor and put it into Qualcomm. You know, after it was already up 2,000%. And you know, the rest is history. wipe themselves out. But it's just amazing how the financial media grabs onto a concept and makes you believe that's the only thing
0: you should ever think about, yeah. And meanwhile, whatever the great companies of the future, nobody's talking about, and this is why you want to diversify because if you own a passive index, invariably, it's going they're they're going to show up in your portfolio magically. <laughs> you know like they're going to they're going to be there. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes is anticipation, as we always say, is a horrible investment strategy because you just don't know where the returns are going to come from in the future. If we really knew we'd be on our yachts and all those uh, prognosticators on TV, if they really knew, they wouldn't be telling us. So food for thought. All right, Chris, since we're talking about the labor market today, in the United States, there were about 75 workers available for every 100 job openings as of July of this year. While states like New Jersey and California have more workers than they know what to do with, you go to places like North Dakota, they only have 0.35 workers available for every 100 jobs, potentially tipping the balance of where job seekers should probably go. Um, there's a lot of workers needed, but just not in the places that you think.
3: Well, you know what, guys? I think uh, if it doesn't work out here, I think I'm going to pack my bags and head up to North Dakota. Plus, you know, for the, those of you that live in California, New Jersey, I think the taxes are a lot cheaper in North Dakota. Well, God knows, Chris, you like to travel
2: and not be in the office. <laughs> Take care to my brother. Hey, Chris, there's, 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 I'm here. There's plenty of the line in North Dakota to, You know, to float your boat.
0: they've got rivers too (laughs) river sailing you could start a new trend uh well another great show thanks for listening thanks for watching this is episode 131 pain points of wealth if you like our podcast love it please give us that five star ratings on itunes leave us a comment there if you would tell everyone how great we are this on spotify you can actually subscribe to the channel if this is youtube right now you're watching you can like the episode subscribe to our channel Click that notification bell to be updated every week of all our new content. That's it for this week. Stay loose and keep an open mind. Thanks for listening to the pain points of wealth. Hopefully you found the ideas discussed in this episode valuable and useful for your own financial journey. You can find out more about Bob, Brian, and Chris's firm, Payne Capital Management at BeBullish.com or through the contact information found in the description of this episode in your podcast player or app. Join us next week for another episode of The Pain Points of Wealth, brought to you by Pain Capital Management. Information provided on today's show is provided for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Investment is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed.